Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Anthony Dockwell. Now, reverberations from Australia's largest ever media deal are still being felt around the country. And over this edition, we will be asking some deep questions about Fairfax and journalism. Also this week, The Guardian in Australia announced its first profit, and this comes on back of Leonore Taylor and her passionate defence of diversity in our media on Q&A. And also this week, Leelin Chin read her last bulletin on SBS. Joining me in the studio and across the country, we have Michael Rodden, who is a business reporter for The Australian. Hello. G'day. Uh, we have Michael Cosio, who's a political reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Hello. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Margaret Simons, who's a freelance journalist and an associate professor in journalism at Monash University. Hello. Hello. It's been less than a week since the news broke that Fairfax was being merged into Nine Entertainment. And last week on Fourth Estate, we spoke to a number of people, including Darren Goodsir and Amanda Wilson. Many of the people we spoke to were still shell-shocked by the news. And this week, we'll turn our attention to the mastheads and their independence. And does any of this make good business sense? Lots to unpack. Let's start with David Marr and his piece on the passing of Fairfax and The Guardian. Uh, like everything he writes, Mars's piece was beautifully written, evocative and unflinching. Reading it, you get a real sense of just what was lost, but also a feeling that the crash was inevitable. Michael Cosio, let's start with you. What did you make of David Mars' take on the passing of Fairfax? Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying I had coffee with David um, a couple of days ago, and um, obviously we talked about um, uh, the, the, the deal. I mean, David's kind of one of my idols and, um, you know... Uh, one of the reasons I joined the Herald or wanted to join the Herald. Uh, and uh, I mean, look, I think, you know, David obviously, um, went through Fairfax at a rather wonderful time to be in newspaper journalism and to be at the Sydney Morning Herald in particular. Um, and you know, possibly, uh, yearns for a day that is not going to come back. So I think, uh, while it was, it was a lovely piece and it was, um, it was uh, a fitting tribute uh, to Fairfax and to the Herald in particular. Um, I don't know. I think, look, for those of us who have to kind of go on and, and, and fight the ground war uh, uh, into the future, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be as pessimistic. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the the mood on the floor is one of scepticism, as journalists inevitably are about all things. Um uh, and there's a lot of concern, but, you know, we also have to face the reality that uh, things weren't going so fantastically to begin with. Uh, and, you know, that, that perhaps there is an argument to be made that, you know, the, you know the, this could strengthen the operation. I don't think, I mean, I, you know, it's tragic cliche of journalism to say only time will tell, but um, I'm sure we'll unpack this over the course of the show, but that probably is unfortunately the reality um, about this deal, if it goes through. He, he points a not too subtle finger at management and their differing and inaction when the rivers of gold ran dry. Um, do Fairfax journalists feel let down by their management? I think broadly speaking, that is true. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, you know, even the people who were at the top at that time, the Fred Hilmers of the world would concede um, that massive mistakes were made. Uh, and, and yes, I think, you know, 
mean, to this day, questionable decisions are made. I, I would like to think, though, that you know at least people are acting in good faith. I can't speak for people who well, you know preceded my time there, but I'd like to think that people throughout the company, including management today, uh, are acting in good faith. Oh, well, I agree with most of what's been said. It was a backward-looking piece. Um, and beautifully written, and I share a lot of David's nostalgia, having been a Fairfax journalist myself back in the day. I'm, I'm famous for having whinged right through what we now realise is the golden period. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was all of those things and also not enough because it's essential that we look at where we are and where we need to be and going forward rather than only mourning the past. Yeah, I, I actually got struck by a bit of jealousy while reading it. Um, you know, the the tales of the the sort of the Fairfax lobby uh, that was filled with modern art, um, you know, and all these boozy lunches. It's we, the modern newsroom is nothing like that. Um, we're worked hard and we're not, uh, you know, handsomely compensated. Uh, and you know, there's next to no contemporary art in the lobbies. Um, <laughs> you got to imagine that, you know. Along with all the sort of the missteps that Fairfax management made, you know, not investing in online classifieds when it could have had it quite cheaply, you know, maybe it should have done the Gough Whitlam and, and bought, you know, a copy of Blue Poles for the for, for the forum as well. And then, you know, that could have been an investment. But it, I, it's it's hard to look back on anything so nostalgic as, you know, the golden rivers of cash that were flowing to these companies. Um, and it, it's sort of just... This this feeling that you know this, this stuff is never going to come back, uh, and it's all it's all a bit depressing to just sort of live back in that old age. Although you know you have to mourn the loss of the the name Fairfax and how the companies were, um, but you know it's it's been dying for a long time now. Well, look, he he paints a picture of a company that was at first beholden to the Fairfax family, but then it was flung out into the marketplace, and and it it got there just before the internet came along. But I think the interesting uh, thread throughout his piece was throughout this, a special brand of uncompromising journalism developed. And it wasn't necessarily there when the Fairfax family were in their prime. It's something that came along uh, later on in the piece. I mean, is that a, an accurate picture of what's important at Fairfax at the moment? And, you know, and how much is that in jeopardy? Well, I mean, look, it, 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 it is central uh, to what we do. Uh, I mean, investigations that the Herald and the Age put out, and, and obviously uh, the the work that the Financial Review does, I think is is our bread and butter, and and it's what you know we pride ourselves on, um, and that you know will continue as long as the papers are around, uh, and the 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 drive of journos to do that work will continue. Uh, now, the, the the problem that the papers have is making money. Uh, I think I think the Herald makes a bit of money at the moment. Um, I'm not quite sure about the Age, but the I mean, the basic problem is that, you know, if they weren't, Fairfax, as it was, wants to run them as profitable entities. Um, Channel 9 is going to want to run it as a profitable entity. And, you know, the, the basic problem we have is that that type of journalism, which is very expensive and requires a lot of resources, um, you know, doesn't pay for itself. Uh, so, obviously, you know, the danger... Uh, that we always fear, but that we feared in the past is that, you know, uh, under this new structure, uh, uh, an entity that isn't deemed to be pulling its weight or isn't making enough money uh, will be, you know, cut without 
sentimentality. Um, but, you know, uh, as I say, I think that was always a concern in the past. It's probably a greater concern uh, as a result of this proposed takeover. Um, but that's the basic problem you've got that, you know, that the, the really important work that we do, uh, it does not exactly fund itself. This may well make the businesses stronger um, and give them more longevity, but that is a different question from what it does for the journalism. And I don't think there's anything particularly that's good in this announcement for the journalism. Um, We all know that media businesses in the current environment are fundamentally challenged, um, and this may make two businesses which are challenged a little bit stronger and enable them to make a living off the backs of things like Stan and the domain real estate advertising, but none of that has anything to do with the journalism. And I really doubt whether the the journalistic assets, um, the Masters of the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australia Financial Review, will actually be part of this conglomerate in the long term. I don't think anything there is going to happen very quickly, but it wouldn't at all surprise me if in two to five years' time we're seeing them sold off outside outside of this entity. We've spoken about David Marr's piece. In many respects, it's an obituary. It's uh, about the diff of Fairfax. This week, Sydney Morning Herald's editor, Lisa Davies, uh, sent an email to subscribers saying, we are far from dead. And uh, Davies' email you know, tried to downplay fears and spoke about the merger saying, rather on a basic level, it's a reasonable, straightforward ownership change of the company designed to allow greater investment in journalism, greater scale to appeal to advertisers, and increase opportunities for growth. The proposed nine company will remain independent, answerable only to shareholders. Is she right? And you know, and for journalists and consumers, is it just business as usual for Sydney Morning Herald? I think. Um, I mean, look, good on Lisa. I mean, because someone's got to talk the joint up, yep. uh, and it's going to do us absolutely no favors to keep talking the joint down. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to see that. And um, you know, as far as, I mean, look, I understand the nostalgia. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of people who kind of took the money and ran, uh, from Fairfax, you know, now obviously have a lot of ideas about how the joint should be run and that's fine. I mean, they're entitled to have ideas, um, but they're not at the coalface, uh, doing it every day. And so, you know, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent, um, agree with my big boss, funnily enough. (laughs) Um, now, look, Davy's letter says that the proposed nine company will be independent, but she has skirted around what I think has been the real talking point for a lot of people about how independent the mastheads will be inside nine. Now, let's let's talk about um, nine's chief executive, Hugh Marks. He has said that he supports Fairfax's chart of independence. What does the panel think of this? Let's start with you, Michael Roden. The, the Charter of Independence has come into good use a lot through the, the Masthead's history. Um, it's prevented the, the, the board or board members from dictating what can be published by the papers. Um, prevented the Gina Reinhardt takeover a little while ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so it's, it's a great idea um, in theory and in practice so far. Um, Going forward, I, I think Hugh Marks has said that you know he he doesn't have any problem you know committing to the the things. I don't think they've signed it yet. Um, you know whether it's a legally binding document or whether it would actually entail any sort of different sort of level of um, editorial independence from the papers once they're newly owned um, is yet to be seen. But 
someone from Channel 9's newsroom was quoted, I think, maybe in The Australian this week, um, talking about how, you know, the, the advertising department of Channel 9 uh, often will push back against, you know, a, a story. Say, you know, they're, they're writing a, an investigation into Big Sugar and some of their biggest advertisers are lolly companies. Um, mm. Advertisers will raise a lot of questions about whether this is the appropriate move to be doing. Um, they don't seem to be giving 60 Minutes a uh, a regular news slot time every every week. Uh, it sort of jumps around depending on, on the nature of the story. And so these just sort of give the impressions that this isn't a company that is working to produce hard-hitting independent stories. Uh, it's in the name. It's Nine Entertainment Company. They're, they get eyeballs on screens um, in order to draw advertising money, uh, and it usually doesn't really matter what is on those screens. Um, so, you know, it'd be great to think that, you know, signing this editorial independence charter uh, will, you know, galvanize the newsrooms into being able to do whatever they want. But there's always a bottom line um, in for-profit companies, um, and it depends on the culture of middle and senior management, really. Margaret, what's your take on, on this, you know, you know, Fairfax's chart of independence? How important is it that uh, Nine signs up to it? Well, I know this makes me sound like a complete dinosaur, but I was actually part of the team that originally drafted the Fairfax Charter of Editorial Independence. And I think um, it's important symbolically, but if people actually sit down and read it carefully, they will notice that it places all of the important pressures on the editor of the publications. So it vests editorial control in the editor and insists that the commercial side of the business doesn't dictate the editorial line. And that's all very well. But if you have a weak editor or an editor who is compliant, then the charter actually means very little. So yes, it's encouraging that they've indicated they um, are prepared to adopt it. Um, it suggests that uh, you know the vibe is right. But if push comes to shove and they appoint an editor who is compliant with the commercial side of the business, then in practical terms, it doesn't mean a huge amount. Yeah, it's not It's not a document that anyone's going to end up in court over. Um, I mean, I just don't think it's that kind of, of, of thing. But uh, yes, it, principally, it is very important. Uh, and I mean, again, I think, you know, we can only promise that uh, the journalists and editors on the floor will resist anything that appears to compromise the independence of our journalism. Yeah, look, there's a couple of things I want to talk about further on this. I mean, the first one is uh, Marcus Strom uh, from the MEAA has uh, called on Nine Chairman Peter Costello to commit to the Charter, who's so far been a bit quiet on the whole issue. Um, there's obviously a lot at stake for both parties. Nine News does do uh, cross-promotion and advertorial in its news bulletins. Should subscribers of the Sydney Morning Herald be worried? I wouldn't say worried. I think that you're a subscriber of the SMH and or the Age, you know, or, or the Financial Review. Um, you shouldn't be cancelling your subscription over a change of ownership. Um, in fact, you should probably be telling uh, everyone you know to buy a subscription as well, in order to, you know, if if an, if a newspaper is robust, then obviously Nine Management is going to give it more freedom. Um, if it's continuing to to bleed money and, and be a source of you know, shareholder losses on the nine balance sheet, uh, then they're obviously going to have more of an incentive to sort of shake things up there. Um, so, yeah, worry isn't the right thing. I, I think that 
Fairfax conducts itself in a pretty transparent manner and everyone knows that journalists like to talk. So I think if there ever is any pushback from Channel 9 uh, in this whole process, uh, it's not going to be any sort of secret and everyone in the media industry is going to know exactly what's happening inside there. Because it strikes me, you know, if we flip this around and look at it from the other perspective, I mean, if you're a journalist working in Nine News right now uh, and Fairfax journalists get their chart of independence... Channel 9 turns into China, like one state, two systems. I mean, can that even work? Especially when they're they're trying to integrate the whole advertising model. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, again, uh, I don't know how that works. I mean, they have their 9MSN site at the moment, which I think does quite well on the ratings, um, on the Nielsen ratings or whatever it is. Um, But it's a different audience. Um, So, I mean, the hope would be that they want to maintain our audience, which is theoretically a kind of premium AB audience, and that they would want those eyeballs in addition to the kind of mass market eyeballs that Channel 9 uh, would normally be broadcasting to. Uh, So I would be hoping that that's of some commercial kind of advantage and that that's what they see in it. Um, But again, you know, the concern obviously has to be that, uh, that, you know, in an unsentimental environment in a company that's had no history uh, with these papers that, yeah, they'll either, you know, cut them to bits or, or flog them off. Maybe, you know, maybe that's where we end up, as Margaret suggested earlier. And this, like, that that brings it back to this point, you know, a, c- a couple of months ago, Fairfax was nearly bought by private equity, equity giant TPG, um, and that deal nearly went through. And under Channel 9, I think the Fairfax mastheads have a great, uh, you know, much more of a a future ahead of themselves because private equity uh, just seems to cut costs and then flip it back onto the share market yeah. at a later well, date. And, and Darren Goodsir made a, a similar point, and he, his point was really this is the best of all the bad options that were open to Fairfax, and Channel 9 is at least in the business of content and news. Uh, mm. You know, it, they at least understand the, the general um, makeup of it. Look, yeah, I just don't think the game is necessarily over. Um, I think there is a bit of a risk that everybody's going to, you know, from outside, it will look for a while as though nothing much is happening. Um, But, uh, in fact, you know, changes will happen, I would say, in about a year, 18 months, two years. We're almost certainly going to see the local, regional and rural papers um, moving out of this conglomerate, probably being sold or else put into some separate vehicle. And, um, you know, I noticed Robert Gottliebson in the Australian today is uh, suggesting that there may yet be other bids in the wind and that other buyers may emerge for the newspaper mastheads. So, you know, I I think it's a mistake to assume that we've arrived at some sort of fixed state. And I certainly think that over the next few years, we will see um, different developments for the mastheads. I don't think they're going to necessarily stay part of nine. Which this also leads us into the business end of things. Now, there's two hurdles that Nine and Fairfax need to get over before the deal actually happens. The first being a green light from the ACCC, and the second is the shareholders of Fairfax. Now, Michael Roden, if this was a great deal, why have shares in Nine Entertainment fallen? It's a complicated question um, because shares in uh, Fairfax have risen. Um, The, I, I guess. Uh, nine shareholders uh, are concerned about taking on a company that has a sizable debt and uncertain future. Um, and it also reveals a lot about uh, Nine's position in the market, which has been struggling uh, in recent years and has recently, more recently than that, uh, turned 
into almost a market leader uh, in the in the commercial media space. Um, some of Fairfax's biggest shareholders haven't yet signed off on the deal because in the way that the, the, the merger uh, works is that uh, shareholders, you know, the, the price of nine shares determines how much Fairfax shareholders get in the deal. Um, and because those are now repricing lower, the essential value of the deal is falling as well. So mm. uh, it may need to be sweetened um, in, in the future with a higher bid. Um, but people generally, when, when companies are in play, um, it brings out other feeders to sort of uh, have a look and a poke around and, and see what's going on. So, you know, it, it's it's certainly not a done deal. And Rod Sims, the, the ACCC chief, has made it clear that he's very interested in uh, maintaining some sort of, you know, level of media diversity, um, you know, whether that's just uh, statements that are, are meaningless um, is yet to be seen because the ACCC's rarely, rarely ever blocked a merger of any sort of kind in the media space. I don't, I don't think it's ever blocked a merger in the media space. Um, but this is the biggest deal ever, you know, in the country's history. So, um, I mean, Michael Cosio mentioned uh, the Nielsen um, figures is, uh, before. If you, you look at the Nielsen figures for news online and add nine sitting on held in the age together, it, it creates a company that is far larger than anything else that's out there as well. I mean, if you were News Limited and you were looking at this, you wouldn't be too happy about it. Well, the the combined company is still less than the market cap of the classifieds advertisements company Seek, which Fairfax passed up buying soon. So, yes, it's the biggest media company by market cap, which it'll, the combined thing will be about five billion. But uh, what is Facebook about one trillion? Yeah. Um, it's it's really it's it's well outside anything sort of large in in Australian terms, um, and the media diversity issue isn't as great anymore when the ACCC can see that uh, consumers have more access to any content at the edge of their fingertips right now for free. So, so you don't see that as a barrier, basically. Well, I, I'm I, I don't know, I don't know the inner workings of Rod Sims' mind, um, but. They're currently conducting an, uh, uh, an an inquiry into the media landscape in light of the tech giants, um, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're trying to bring a bit more rationalism, rationalization, not rationalization. They're trying to bring a bit of sense to, to the market at the moment um, because the players have sort of dominated any which way they can. Um I know that Rod Sims thinks there's value in in having newspapers, you know, for democracy and mm-hmm. you know all these lofty causes like that. Um, but whether he'll block a deal that might keep Fairfax alive for a bit longer, I'm I'm not too sure. It's complicated. Breathless: The Death of David Dungate Jr. is a new podcast from Guardian Australia and 2SCR 107.3. It explores an Indigenous death in custody from the point of view of the family. They, they didn't have to do what they done. They could have just let him eat his biscuits. Just hours after his death, Corrective Services released a statement saying his death was not suspicious. But David's family has seen the footage. He's saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. They're saying, oh, you're talking so you can breathe. Subscribe to Breathless wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to The Guardian. Um, with news this week that the Australian division announced its first 
ever profit. The company reported a profit of 700000 driven mainly by growth in its subscriber model. Under the structure of the company, the profit can't go into new Maseratis, uh, but it may be invested back into journalism. And in this current climate, this is tremendous news. Guardian has for a long time now been one of the bright stories in Australian media. Uh, what have they got right that News Limited and Fairfax have got wrong? Well, um, it is great news, um, and, and, and it's a tremendous result. And I believe, or I understand, uh, that in particular the Australian arm of The Guardian uh, has a readership that has been willing to donate. Uh, so if you read The Guardian, um, you would call you can't get away from the uh, ads kind of begging you for money. Um, but it seems that those have worked. Because, uh, uh, I, yeah, I understand that the um, readership of The Guardian in Australia has, you know, compared to... The Guardian's readers in other countries has been especially willing to donate money, um, and it's put them in this now profitable position. So, um, and, and you know, the Guardian obviously has done a very good job of nurturing those readers and forming relationships with those readers. Um, you know, you look at the stories that they run, especially political stories that get hundreds and hundreds of comments. So, there's clearly a very good relationship there between brand, masthead, and audience, and they've exploited that, and they're now uh, in the black. So that's great. Margaret, what's your take? Uh, look, it's obviously good news. It's not entirely unexpected. As I understand it, the Guardian are pretty much on track with their plan. But in these changeable times, that's good news. But I do think one of the hopeful signs in media at the moment is that if you look at the Guardian in England, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and as I understand it, the Australian, all of them are now earning a much bigger percentage of their revenue from readers whether that comes in the form of donations in the case of The Guardian or subscription costs in the case of the others. Now, that's, you know, that's a big change for all of my career. The, the uh, conventional wisdom has been if you're in newspapers, you earn 80% of your money from advertisers and only about 20% from readers if you're lucky. Um, the fact that that's shifting is a hopeful sign. It suggests that at least for high-end quality journalism, people are prepared to pay. Um, and um, it puts a lot more power, of course, in the hands of the audience as opposed to those of the advertisers. And isn't it amazing that um, they're prepared to pay even when there's no paywall? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. Like, before, before The Guardian did this, there were essentially two models. There was free news, and then there was a premium news product, which was behind a paywall. The Guardian have provided free premium news, and they've got people to pay for it at the same time. Yeah. Um, it, it is an amazing thing, but is it something that's only open to the Guardian? Well, I think like the the Guardian, their 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 business model is is a great idea because they've convinced their readers that they are printing the truth that people don't want you to hear, and the truth is going to change the world. Um, and they've got this hardcore set of readers that love that. Um, you know, they they pander to to people's feelings of, of goodwill, progressivism, things like that. Um, I, I guess it's sort of taking the more um, left-wing readers off, off the Fairfax papers. Um, but they want to support this because they see it as standing up to, you know, quote-unquote, the, the, the mainstream media and things like that. So they don't actually worry if everyone else is accessing this, the news that they're paying for um, because they think it's going to change the world. Um, and I think that, you know... That's a great thing for journalism. If if you can convince readers and, and consumers that news is going to change the world and that they should give money to it because of that, then 
that's the solution because, you know, reading newspapers is part of a civic duty. Mm. That's a great thing that The Guardian has been able to convince their readers to do. This begs the question, does it make it harder for the companies that are currently running paywalls to to run paywalls? Uh, I don't think the readers of The Australian are going to leave to The Guardian anytime soon. Um, and thank, luckily for us, uh, they're, they're willing to pay for, you know, an ex- 40 pages of broadsheet news and opinion a day. Um, and there's a lot of good work that gets done by the paper. So thank you to our subscribers out there listening to 2SER. <laughs> uh, now, look, uh, I want to turn to Lenore Taylor on Q&A because it links back to our talk on Fairfax. Um, let's have a listen. I'm sure uh, the Minister is going to say that the uh, takeover of Fairfax by Nine makes for a commercially stronger organisation that can better compete with Google and Facebook in the ad market where they're so dominant. And he's right, it will. The problem is there is actually no connection anymore between a commercially strong organisation and a journalistically strong organisation. Now, I mean, nine journalists do some good journalism, but it's very different from the kind of journalism that's done at Fairfax. And almost everybody looking at this merger and the cultures of the two organisations is very, very worried about what's going to happen to Fairfax journalism in that environment. I'm sure our colleagues at Fairfax, who are amongst the best in the business, will do their very best to continue to produce quality journalism. But I think we have have reason for concern and that's coming at it, and this uh, contraction in media diversity in the most concentrate one of the most concentrated media markets in the world, um, is coming at a time when there's really a real problem with civic journalism. There's a real problem with being able to to create the kind of journalism, the kind of news, the kind of uh, holding the powerful to account that is really essential for our society, for our democracy. Now, she said all this while sitting next to the minister who not only gave thumbs up to the merger, but also designed it so it could happen. Um, it was a gutsy call for action from Lenore. Um, the question she was asking from my point of view was really, you know, can civic journalism exist in a multi-tiered, integrated entertainment company? It's pretty clear what she thinks the answer is. I mean, what was your take from it? Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, I, bro- I broadly agree with her that we have reason for concern. Um, and I think everyone, everyone has expressed that. Uh, and concentration of media ownership has always been a problem in this country. It's a small market, uh, and you only have to look, you know, every time you go to London and you see, it's fantastic to see, you know, like 10 or 12 newspapers serving uh, a city and a country um, that are all kind of have their own uh, sort of identities, um, but they all compete with each other. Or, you you know, you, you stand back and watch the incredible competition between um, New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so competition breeds great outcomes in journalism, and it, it should follow, therefore, that the less competition uh, will uh, breed fewer good outcomes. So, uh, yes, we have reason to be concerned. Margaret, what was your feelings on what Lenore was saying? No, I thought she was spot on, and Lenore has been, um, you know, an observer and a participant in this stuff for a very long while. She was at Fairfax. She's one of those who's defended the Charter of Editorial Independence in the past. Um, she knows what she's talking about. Um, so, no, I think she's absolutely right. And, you know, people should realise that, in a sense, this isn't a surprise. Ever since the media ownership laws changed last year, it has been close to inevitable that something like this would happen and the tie-up between Fairfax and Nine has been 
one of the likely um, outcomes. Uh, my beef all along has been that the government has seen its job in media regulation as being just about removing outdated regulations, and they are out, they were outdated. You couldn't argue against that. It hasn't actually thought about what a modern fit for purpose media ownership regulation or media regulation of any kind what that what such a system might look like. Yeah, no, it, it's tricky, and like I said, no one's got this solved. Um, if they did, they'd be you know the wealthiest person in the world. Um, you know, two things, I guess. Um, the problem of having, you know, a, 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 an entity that does civic journalism within a, a broader entity that that has nothing to do with civic journalism um, is, I, I think there's some examples, you know, the Washington Post under Amazon, for instance, um, it can, it pretty much has free reign to do what it wants there, probably not to uh, investigate Amazon, but uh, it, it's that's it's, a benevolent dictator letting Washington Post go off and spend money. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I, there's there's a couple of other instances of, of business models that work like that. Um, on, on the other hand, the the problem that contemporary newsrooms have is that there are two classes of journalists. There are people like Fairfax's investigative team that get to really hone in on issues, spend months on stories, yep. do this work, but they're also supported by an army of young, poorly trained typists that are churning out stories, you know, multiple times a day. Um, and as the industry has gotten more stressed, you've had the middle rung of what we used to call senior journalists or beat reporters sort of disappear uh, from the industry. And that's not going to be solved by any sort of uh, benevolent parent or or your ownership model it it's it's only going to be solved by people buying the news specifically for the news um and that doesn't seem to happen anymore okay so the answer is really we all need to go out and subscribe to multiple papers right now immediately, immediately. I, I like i i genuinely okay. think that the the issue to solving this is convincing people it's part of their civic duty to yeah. to subscribe to newspapers but it's a hard argument to win against an apathetic Australian population. Maybe it should be like my record, um, health, you know, the heart, the health system, where you actually have to opt out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I <laughs> I look. I I don't, I don't see why not. <laughs> I always I always kind of wondered uh, uh, whether you could actually uh, have a government funded newspaper, and I don't see principally uh, if you can have a government funded broadcaster uh, why you couldn't. But anyway, that's a thought experiment for another time, perhaps. <laughs> Well, let's end on a more cheery note, uh, if, if that's possible. Uh, Li Lin Chin, uh, ending her time at SBS. She signed off on Sunday, and I can't be the only one who was surprised that the sun rose on Monday. Um, maybe, maybe the event was magnified by social media, but this does seem to be the biggest news retirement since Brian Henderson uh, moved on in 2002, if you can, if you can uh, believe it's that long ago. Uh, she was born in Indonesia and grew up in Singapore. She emigrated to Australia in 1980 and started a 38-year-long career at SBS. And all I can say, that is multiculturalism. It's, it's wonderful. Every, uh, retirement sounds great. Um, <laughs> as some, you, know, you never know when you might be forced into one. So it's great that uh, she's um, doing it voluntarily. And I hope she has lots of time to do whatever it is that... Uh, she enjoys in life. I must say, I mean, I can't, you know, we were sort of talking about this before the show, but I mean, kind of the kind of adulation and the shock and awe, uh, I sort of, you know, find a little bit 
sort of puzzling uh, in that, you know, I'm not quite sure all these people uh, who are fangirling over Leland Chen actually watch SBS News at 6.30 or whenever it is. I don't know. I'm never home then, so I, I can't mm. say I do myself. Um, but I haven't lost any sleep over it, I must say. Yeah, I think that, like, if, if everyone who was outpouring in, in public uh, grief about Lee Lin Chin actually watched uh, the ESBS World News every night, we'd be having much different conversations uh, every day in the media, you know, compared to the ones we're having now. Margaret, do you have anything to add? Oh, look, it's been a great inning. Good on her. Hope she has a great retirement. But, um, you know, one one news presenter retiring, it may be sad. I, I enjoy... Um, her persona as much as anyone, but it's um, you know it's not it doesn't go to the heart of the issues we're facing. I suppose. Does, does her popularity send a message to commercial TV that they need to be more representative of the country? Oh look, I think it's always been the case that um, that people might not like journalists much. If you ask most Australians what they think of journalists, we come out somewhere lower than is Carl Feldman. But if you ask them about particular journalists, often there's enormous affection and respect there. I'm thinking about, you know, Andrew Olley, for example, who filled the Sydney Town Hall for his funeral. Um, you know, particular journalists, and, and she would certainly be one of them, attract enormous loyalty and support. And uh, she's certainly an example of that. And that does seem to be um, particular to television um, and, and perhaps even particular to newsreaders and, I guess, breakfast television hosts. Um, radio, radio as well, I would argue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. and, and this fills me with uh, great hope, uh, in fact, for my potential future as a newsreader on the Nine Network. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, how's that for an optimistic note? Well, there you go. There is a newsflash. That's it from us on Fourth for State. Thanks to my guests, Michael Rodden from The Australian, Michael Cosio from the Sydney Morning Herald, the age, Margaret Simons, who is a freelance journalist and associate professor in journalism at Monash University. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. And if you've got a few moments, leave us a review in iTunes. Helps other media junkies find the Fourth Estate. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch we're on Twitter and our handle is 4 for State AU. My name is Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening. Listener.